Welcome to the Interpreter's House podcast. Today I'm talking with Maria Sledmir, who is author of The Lunar Erratum. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. Um, so my first question I straight up stole from David Turner, who ran the Lunar Poetry podcast for a while. For many years, he founded it. A while was a massive understatement. It just felt kind of fitting with the title of the collection. Um, but the question is, why poetry? So no pressure. <laughs> I used to listen to this podcast. Um, I really liked it. Good question. Why poetry? Uh, yeah, I used to hate poetry and not in a like cool way of like, I used to hate poetry. Um, but just, I think like if I was a child reading a fantasy novel, I would always skip the bits that had poetry. I would be like, mm. It just requires a slowing down that my mind <laughs> didn't really want to give me. Um, and then I think it kind of like, it sort of cracked me in different ways, but um, one of it um, is quite cringe, but it was actually reading Wordsworth um, and thinking about like spots of time. Um, and oh, thinking about, I know, I know, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'm at the risk of oversharing. I had a very similar cringy initial Wordsworth, you know, my mum discovered, oh, it was the daffodil wandered lonely as a cloud Aww. thing. And my mum discovered it in the printer. And so for the best part of 10 years, whenever she sees a poem of mine, she's like, why can't you write poems about daffodils? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's your like origin story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think my mum used to have all those books like in the bathroom that'd be like a poem a day that someone had like got her for, um, I don't know Christmas and often it would be things like the romantics um but yeah I think the way I, it sort of clicked to me when I just was going through a weird time about I guess like eight years ago and would just read them out loud in this kind of like really calming way um and then something about the way that poetry can kind of mediate time and hold you through something um but then I started off writing a lot of fiction and then like flash fiction, which I don't know if flash fiction is still a thing. Um, probably. It probably is. It's never been, flash fiction has never been something that I've like known a whole lot about. Um, I was just thinking it's, in, it's another parallel in our origin story. I also started writing mm. very shitty spy novels where I was driving an Aston Martin. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's going to get cut. This, um, this is good though, because... I think like the the form of like gothics or spy or like adventure or like romance um is the serial form um and I don't know if it was about you but for me it was more like addictive to write things like that in installments and post them online even if there was absolutely nobody apart from one sort of bot yeah. reading them um yeah fortunately none of my spy novels made it online <laughs> <laughs> but I did, I did, I did similarly start, um, start with a very embarrassing blog, which is somewhere on Tumblr rotting away with like 10,000 followers. It's very strange. <laughs> you can't yeah. rot away with 10,000 followers. <laughs> I think you can, because I've, I've tried to like, I've tried to resurrect it for Haverthorn things. So I can try mm. and, you know, make use of having 10,000 nothing <laughs> not, not like a sing, not a single like nothing it's like you have to just so. like what do I need to get them like what's the bait and then <laughs> what 
Well, I worry that the bait was the stuff I was writing when I was 16, which is not something I really want to do. So. Yeah, you'd have to sort of do a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, not, yeah, no, I think I sometimes wonder, um, I, I was thinking about how many websites I made as like a child. Well, not I guess I was like 10 on like free webs that would be like um, kind of made up worlds. So it would be like the name of a planet and that would be the website and everything about the planet and the world building of it was on this website with like bad clip art. Um, I'm like, what was the carbon cost of all that? I remember clip art. <laughs> <laughs> like animated clip art, which was like yeah. <laughs> the peak. Um, and in fact, it's still quite um, an important visual touchstone for my uh, illustration practice. <laughs> right. Bad clip You sent me the loony, yeah. And I can't reveal the context, but you sent me the Looney Tunes thing, which I loved. Mm. The Looney Tunes yeah. art. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had a thought and it went. It's early here for me. But, it's yeah, 10. It's not early. 10 is early. I, I've had to. Oh, yeah. It. I was going to say, I think. I was going to say the world building, I think, was what drew me to fiction. And I think it's something mm. that I. Um, really like in poetry and it's one of the reasons I'm drawn to your work where a lot of the time it's sort of not all the time but often use the sort of long form and sequence um and the world is just so rich and it feels like a world it doesn't just um come across as like a single emotion that's being like put on a plate and handed to you it's many emotions that are weirdly knotted up and part of living in the world um, and because I'm saying all this and no one will have any context at this point I wondered if you could read a poem for us sure I was hoping you could read a short history of light yeah good to start with a tongue twister <laughs> I have I also have my rodent sisters on the list so yes. <laughs> I'm you up for that one. <laughs> I haven't actually read that one out loud um, and I'm excited well I, I, I have read it out loud on my own but I haven't publicly read it out loud so right um it'd be fun um a short history of light this is a sonnet <laughs> i feel like everyone has to start by announcing a sonnet it's like the speech act yes um, <laughs> <laughs> butter light starlight hardly the softest light falls through skylight pleasure light telephone light as a breeze light pain light the male light will melt on carpets and clock my light home American light, gun light, lightest chrome alone light, feather light, clear light, blue light to permanent green light, gaslit sunlight for Marlboro light, click this honeycomb shop light, a house light, sempaternal gold against pear light, red light under the street night halogen yellow, sultry light wrong as twilight back to your lover in cold erotic blonde of good light palest sheet lightning inside you really the same thing i really love how you sort of move away from the rhyming well repetition in the last last line i mean there is still some repetition but um i wondered if um there was some Joni mitchell going on in this poem because it reminded me of um, this flight tonight. Hmm. I don't Actually, know if you know yeah. it. I do know that, uh, like, I've got the refrain in my head that, um, not consciously, but there is Joni in this book. 
Um, yeah, and, uh, I was thinking this before I saw Joni in the book. I, this is my way of being like, mm. I, you know, I thought Joni before Joni was cool to think. But. <laughs> before Joni was summoned. Yeah, no, yeah, I think there's something about like the chromatics or like the Americana maybe as well. Um, like it's kind of like dusky, but like sort of glitzy, I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah, also just the um, the like quick fire lights at the beginning um, mm. and the way the poem sort of unspooled from that it, it just seemed like it yeah. might have been a starting point it's interesting that it's not much the same yeah way. but I know because you you also do a lot of music criticism am I right in saying that yeah so, like um less less so right now because I'm finishing my PhD but um since about 2016 I've been doing quite a lot so music is always like in and out one of the kind of major influences or just sort of ambient input <laughs> into right. any practice what what's your phd on um so the title is hypercritique towards a lyric architecture for the anthropocene um so it's a practice-based dfa in creative writing um but essentially trying to think about um how creative critical like hybrid writing can help us think the sort of impossibilities of thought towards the sort of multiple challenges of the Anthropocene as something that is distributed weirdly, has a lot of scale issues, um, and is itself like a term that kind of seems impossible or like critically indefensible in different ways. Um, and then trying to think about how lyric in particular um, especially thinking about it in terms of a sort of architectural or world building sense in a, like a sort of sensuous architecture um, yeah. can help kind of think through ec an ecological thought in, which is based on like forms of desire um, dreaming and sensation that are trying to kind of unlearn those sort of premised upon neoliberal capitalism um, yeah, and then sort of the, the mediation and technology is also part of that. So like how we understand um, climate crisis and how we understand being in time um, through ecology and, and sort of the Anthropocene is very much a product of like Web 2.0 and um, big tech in certain ways. So kind of thinking about those contradictions of like, OK, I, I'm I'm trying to critique this while also writing it on google docs or something like that um yes yeah <laughs> it's impossible to get away from yeah even yeah even when you know you need a secondhand book and everything is that's secondhand online is pretty much owned by amazon these days i think world of books is the big exception yeah no and it's books. it's a huge thing i mean like as a small press publisher yourself like the distribution issue and how to build infrastructures of distribution um that that can go beyond like kind of yeah that can go beyond like borders um and obviously there's many issues right now with the uk and brexit and getting stuff to the eu and so like yeah kind of sometimes i think i've i've been a bit um slow to do it but i think we may have to take down EU and just sort of tell people to get in touch if they're in the EU and try and figure out uh, or do sort yeah. of free PDFs for people in the EU because I'm I'm hearing a lot of horror stories about yeah. books coming just... back in their dozens and it's, yeah. yeah we have um, a, a strange workaround that we're intending to do with spam where 
Max um, lives in Berlin. Um, lucky Max got to Berlin before the Brexit deadline in the pandemic. Big right. dramatic move. Um, and yeah. he's coming home for Christmas. So we're just going to give him a bunch of stock and be like, you're doing the EU orders. <laughs> you're at EU yeah, orders. well, Iris, Iris um, being from France goes back quite mm. a lot. So we might end up doing something similar where we sort of say, okay, we can take orders from the EU, but, you know, we can only distribute them you know, every few months. So yeah. please. It's kind of nice. Have a discount. Yeah. Like think like a sort yeah. of scarcity economy, but like, because like there's certain books from the US that if I want enough, like I will beg, like we've got this bookshop called Good Press who are really great. And they have quite good suppliers and they'll try and get stuff in for you. Like the other day, um, I was trying to get um, a Dichi Machado's Emporium um, and they ordered in like three copies, one for me, one for Fred Spolia and one for the bookshop, which is nice. So I was right. like, I'm just going in and buy two at once. <laughs> um, so it's good if you have local bookshops that can kind of work with the suppliers, I guess. But Yeah, um, I keep having thoughts and my brain keeps shutting down. <laughs> it was going to be something intelligent about small presses, but it's gone. Um, so instead, I wondered if we could do another reading. Yes. Yeah, I was good. hoping you could read the first part of Swerve because mm. it was my favorite. I think it was probably my favorite poem in the collection. And I think it's sadistic to make you read the whole of it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to hear the rest of this sequence, you need to buy the book. Yeah. Um, okay. So. I might just read the epigraphs as well. I know that that's always something that feels a bit... Oh, yeah, sure. ...fancy yeah. and decadent, but I think, like, it... Yeah, it's... I it's, love it's, epigraphs. Yes. <laughs> um, there's a whole debate, like, the, the maximalist versus minimalist epigraph debate, um, but maybe yes for later. <laughs> so the first one oh, is... Oh, no, we can... We can get into it. Well, the question is, like, I have been told there's a rule where you should never have more than one one author as an epigraph unless that they talk to each other in an, a sort of provocative or like, unless they, in being together, the two or, two or more authors like change, change each other, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. I don't know that I agree with that perspective that you have to have just one unless it's somehow talking to each other. That seems like kind of mired in this idea that everything needs to be nice and even and sort of like nothing can be messy which I strongly disagree with, just on instinct, having come to this debate just a second ago. <laughs> I think there are, like, different... Con like, I think, because originally the whole book had something like three epigraphs, um, which... So I ended up choosing just um, one from Clarice Lispector, but the other ones did have wind up in the book in different ways. They might have ended up as a title um, or as part of the press materials. So I think, like... I'm really interested in like the paratexts of the book um, and like how you, again, it's part of the world building almost. It's like, how do you gesture towards its provocations um, without being too didactic or like without giving away your hand or something like that? Um, yeah. But I think without it, like... I guess, well, without it, I guess being an inside joke that nobody can get, but you still want it to be an inside joke. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I think it's something about, I love like like thinking about what secrets can your work preserve? And 
ways in which like readers will find them and have their own sense of them but like will never kind of get um I also love it when like the author thinks that it's still secret and it's clearly like like I was listening to when I can't sleep I was listening to um Lana Del Rey's Instagram live for her recent album launch and she's like okay uh, um well I there's this one detail that I put in the album that I think explains like everything about my work and you'll never know what it is it's like it's clearly when you admit that your whole work is based on like having mummy issues it's fine like it's obvious Lana um and I kind of love that and I'm gonna let her have it <laughs> um but you know similarly it's kind of like I love how you can you can have in jokes and poems or you can have but then read by someone else like they'll mean something very different and that's fine yeah it's weird as well when you know it's an in joke that you're not getting and you're reading it aloud and you're reading it in your voice um especially i guess now that and for and it's 100 percent a good thing that the poetry world is a lot more diverse than it used to be so when i'm so for instance when i'm reading the very start when I'm just sort of getting into it, I also like came to poetry through the romantics. Mm. I can very easily like pick up the voice of Keats, just, you know, um, but there are obviously experiences, whether it's like um, being a woman or, or being black or whatever it is. And I'm reading the poem aloud. It's, uh, it's a kind of, it's a good experience, I think, but it's certainly a strange experience reading that in your voice. Yeah. This is actually really interesting because I, I've been teaching this semester. I'm on like a first year poetry course, and um, the the desire sometimes to hear it in the author's voice. So the desire to like play a recording rather than read it aloud, um, and that 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 has you know a politics to it, right? Like, um, and then times in which when you read it aloud is is very different. Um, like today we were doing um, Amiri Baraka's poem "Dope," and like I don't even know. I mean, like. I just physically couldn't read it <laughs> aloud. Like it's such a dynamic poem. It also just has a lot of things in it that just would not be okay for me to say, or it'd be weird for me to say as a white person. Um, but also just like he has this amazing musicality that like the sermon like delivery that that's just like students kind of need to hear him do it to really get the poem. Um and it's mm. like, oh thank God for these these like recordings. Um but yeah, something about putting, I'm also really interested though in what happens when you put your poem in someone else's voice, like when you hand it over deliberately or what happens in collaboration where you forget which bits are yours. Um, sometimes when I hear things read aloud, it's like, oh, that the rhythm is kind of different now. And I really like that, especially when it's something like a sonnet where you feel like the rhythm is quite restricted, but actually the way people play stress is still subjective to some extent. Yeah, also when I'm um when I'm reading my own work aloud, I'm always giving it a very favorable reading. <laughs> if I think there's a certain cadence to mm. a line or whatever, I'm always like uh, well not always. A lot of the time I'm reading that cadence into it. Um yeah. which can be a bit dangerous because then it's not as good as it as you think it is. People don't talk about cadence enough. Mm. It's one of the reasons I really love your work I think I don't know maybe it's um because our origin story through the romantic poets is similar but um yeah there's a lot of um form and cadence and prosody in your work and but the same 
at the same time it's not forced it seems like the poetry has moved away and there's this kind of like relic of that in your work mm -hmm. where you sort of sort of slip in and out of that mode a little bit yeah that would make sense I think like I guess my sort of like I didn't do any like creative writing degrees until my PhD so I didn't really have a formal training in like um creative writing per se but I used to run uh, in true nerd fashion the university's creative writing society and would just make up a lot of workshops on stuff that I didn't really know about so I'd be like let's do a haiku workshop or something um and most people there just wanted to talk about like Harry Potter or Doctor Who and I was like Ugh, I just want to talk about like Chris Deva and like powers of horror <laughs> um and like poetry but in some way we met in the middle where there was this kind of world building component and then there was this kind of like emphasis on like conceptual thinking maybe um but it did mean that I did a lot of like quite formulate writing what worked with a lot of writing prompts um so we'd sort of take turns to run it um so this was when I was sort of like 1920 21 um and I guess like at the time I would I guess I was writing poetry then but I'd never really consider it like poetry like looking back it's like that's just stuff you did in the workshop I didn't really start writing until maybe 2016 um in terms of poetry right. so yeah I think like maybe that's something... really recent yeah I guess so don't know what about like how's that um I think I've always like I've been keeping a diary since I was about 17 um quite like a handwritten diary and I think maybe some of the learning how to to do sentences came from that like I think uh I never really have paragraphs when I diarize it's all just like endless um right. sentences and I think maybe that taught me something about like cadence and syntax and grammar um and I think like a lot of the fiction I was writing uh had maybe the intensities of poetry in terms of its description um, and like flights of fancy <laughs> um and I tend to sort of write from a first person point of view so I think it definitely had like a lyric mode to it it's just that like I was scared of line breaks I think it literally was just being scared of line breaks okay <laughs> I think also if you like hate poetry at a certain point it's hard to shake that off as well yeah but it's such a I mean it's just such a product of like doing no poetry at school apart from you know like one notorious Larkin not Larkin um... no <laughs> There was a lot of Larkin at my school. There was no Larkin at my school, which, I mean, at least Larkin is kind of, like, teenage bad. Um, I think the main problem yeah. is, like, how it's taught and, and, like, how... Yeah, although we did a lot of Tennessee Williams drama, and I think he is essentially a poet. Like, his stage directions are very poetic. So I think maybe I came to some sort of poetry through doing, like, Streetcar and Sweet Bread of Youth. Um right. Yeah, I had a similar, I preferred learning plays at school as well. Um, just in general, though, literature in school is so depressing. Yeah. I went back because I was going to, um, being a literature graduate, I was going to go into teaching. Hmm. And I, I got sent home after one day <laughs> shadowing. <laughs> you had to do a week of shadowing to be accepted onto a teaching course. And I got sent home after one day. It was just a lot of AO1, AO2. Oh, so yeah. Bleak. Yeah, no, it's, I, I mean, I had a weird experience at school because um, I went to quite a small rural school and there was not many subjects. 
um and they they like boosted me and this other boy kind of forward a year um which meant that we were like really young in this class of people that were resetting their hire which i guess is like the a-level equivalent um and so we were kind of like confused babies and most of what i can't remember what was being studied but i remember there was the the english teacher um was actually she was like a film studies graduate so she didn't really want to teach books so so she taught films but she was doing like um lynn ramsey's morvan Caller, which is an amazing film and i can't believe i got to watch that when i was like 15 because that was like such a game changer for me but no one got it and it's a shame because it was like man this film is about people that live in oban we live in a we live near a port town ourselves that's like kind of down in the dumps and like um I really connected to the character because it, it, it basically was like here's like a French art house style film about like a shit Scottish town like this is like blowing my mind I never thought that was possible um and then didn't read the Alan Warner novel till I was older but um that was probably quite an important moment actually yeah for all the shit we're giving the UK <laughs> education system there's always one brilliant teacher that sort of something shines cracks through. it and gets you out of it yeah right um Shall we have the reading of Swerve? Because that yeah. I um, in true form so that was on a big tangent. <laughs> a truly swerve, a true, a true swerve out of swerve. Um, yes. <laughs> so the first, the first epigraph is from Fred Moten. Improvisation is how we make no way out of way. Improvisation is how we make nothing out of something. And next one was from Lisa Robertson. Go Venus, go Vernal, go turning, go darling, by folding, by buoyant kiss. And last is from Jackie Wang. I remember writing that love of the bent tree is love of the swerve. One. You begin with a swerve, beginning the day as though it were over. At such moments, wisps of the Japanese maple in late November and a pale linen feeling that might not last as long as you are walking uphill to meet us as long as you are the last of the rest. There is a burning far away at once seemed greyer than reserve or cirrus, some ash falls as though it was just. Small, unnameable, birds do not settle, and will you light a cigarette behind the bike shed ten years ago and more to bake this into scent? Back and forth, the money goes starling, just upstream you could feel the pressure more like truth deal, such water as the tiniest among us feel in their plasma, and is it the same as coming back, how we were, life towards life? In some consequence of the plastic dish full of radiant fruit, assorted nuclear sensation, the amnesty of another microbe comes now to sort, incline, and recoil. When asked, you will enter the vagueness of water, what pain is it you bring now, shining and wild as it was to see this backwards, happening apart from the retina? You peel the avatar of one or any other sex. It is milk underneath. In the minimal literalism of the light, the light that was mine, you patiently say, as though from a state the balance swings, and from that beam we eat the soft bird peaches from their ferric tins, and sweet is the picket that seeks to leave here clean as our uncontracted children, drawing tomorrows as chalk in lifelong collaboration with rain, breaking slight, a fine gold chain of fate, out of sync, your leaves mourn slowly their clinement airs, 
and coming solo at the moment, such reds as those between a phasic mist consult a partial language of char. No green isle, sunless as a slow eternal fall would be, its distance refusing, sapless in the season now. Thank you. I didn't realize quite how um, perfect the poem seemed in terms of seasons until I heard you read it. Um, I'm being in America, I'm reading Fall as Autumn now. Mm. Yeah, Somewhat no, I think that's impossible to avoid. Yeah. Um, um, there's quite a lot of seasons in this book, and they're kind of weird. I think when I was organizing it as a book, I didn't want it to be kind of like seasonally arranged in any linear way, um, which is why maybe like the, it does have this sort of like, yeah, like diurnal thing of like the, the sun and the moon, um, but then also these kind of like the weirding seasons, like kind of seasons sort of glitch into each other or bleed into each other a little bit, um, which is obviously how things go with climate crisis, but then also just like- Oh, how, yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, but also it, how we- it feels sorry carry on um but then also just like how we access seasons through like media like i can watch a film set in like new york at christmas time and feel nostalgic for that even though i've never been to new york never seen snow in new york in real life but you can kind of like your sense of seasons are so filtered and mediated um that you can like desire something of them um or have your emotions inflected by them yeah yeah it's it's really weird um trying to figure out what is actually nostalgia and what is um sort of the capitalist totally. um, impression i guess you know as, as a kid we used to go on holidays to spain so a lot of the time i find myself like craving going to spain and then i you know i watched i think it was like rob bryden and um steve coogan they were going they were going around spain trying a lot of food and i was like oh my god i'm so nostalgic for all these places i have never been to yeah completely um, um we actually we interviewed um this guy grafton tanner on the spam podcast a, a while ago and he, his his work is all about technology and nostalgia and he's very like critical of yeah. i guess the fact that like the kind of sort of disney marvel complex just perpetuates this loop of like nostalgia and never really it just it's like such a self-contained world it's like so self-citational um and i guess he's kind of writing from a sort of mark fisher lineage like but like when ontology yeah. becomes like kind of crippling because it's it's not just a case of like nostalgia it's something you haven't experienced but like it's become this industry which just traps you in the 80s <laughs> like i think any i mean i went through a really big funnily enough my entrance into poetry was very much coincidental with my uh late obsession with vaporwave in like 2016 um and i think like any kind of radical deterritorializing potential of that obviously just kind of falls back into um how vaporwave kind of gets cited in like branding um and advertising even though initially it was such a weird and disarming kind of art form that didn't really have um sort of copyrighted individual musicians or make any money um right i've not heard of vaporwave before mm. could you enlighten me could, could you tell me what it is so it it started in 2011 i think um and 
kind of I'm not sure what platform exactly probably anything from Bandcamp to SoundCloud but essentially it would take mostly songs from the 80s like things like um what's he called Elvis Costello or like Huey Lewis in the news all these kind of big 80s pop stars take their songs or like Toto Africa and slow them down. Oh God, a there's a Weezer cover of Toto Africa. <laughs> no, it's on the radio all the time here. <laughs> oh my they God. just don't stop playing it. <laughs> for so for years at this point. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> just totally derailed. derailed the that with <laughs> um, but I guess it's kind of like the this sort of interesting like sort of subtext that has um but yeah so it would so it would slow them right down so it sounded like you were kind of like in a shopping mall in the 80s like underwater um the famous one was um floral shop by macintosh plus um which maybe you'd recognize to hear it but like a lot of them would play with this kind of like um they often use like sort of Japanese lettering um and this kind of like I guess it had a sort of orientalist spin to it but some of the producers um were actually like from these countries that were cited aesthetically but some some of it was just like I don't know like Anglo-American producers kind of um probably problematically kind of citing it but there was a kind of like mystery to it you didn't really know who was the producer um I think the most famous one probably would be um Daniel Lapatin who's now one of tricks point never um he started out as like chuck person who had these echo jams which were made out of um echo the dolphin um kind of cut-ups of yeah like but he would take a really specific tiny loop of a song just loop it like he would take like a five second sample and just loop it um and it was weirdly hypnotic and i think i was doing a master's i sort of had spent a year just waitressing and i was doing a master's in like cultural theory um and literature like modernism and just like have I'd never slept and I would just be like studying while listening to this stuff for like yeah <laughs> but there's something about the the viscous quality of it it's kind of interesting yeah. right and so just going back to what you were saying earlier is it is that is vaporwave now being sort of appropriated basically taken over by capitalism and the nostalgia is getting recycled yeah and even worse because there's now like basically like there's like Trump wave in 2016 and then it kind of just had almost this like fash wave thing where they would just like put certain speeches uh to the background of like a slowed down 80s song and it was kind of like again this part of this decontextualizing that just became kind of alt-right maybe um towards the end so it's a it's a weird one it's one of those classic ones where it's just like something that kind of had a liberatory or like quite leftist capitalist critique kind of just gets cited and reproduced um right yeah but i don't i think like the i mean grafton's book um um babbling corpse um which came out i think in 2016 is quite that, a good like history is that zero or repeater or i think it's zero he's done books on repeater and zero i think that one was zero yeah shout out to repeater for getting zero back yes <laughs> where it's it nice happy publishing story yeah i'm um the risk of revealing too much i worked for the big umbrella company mm. that owns zero yeah for three years i'm i fortunately got out in yeah. july um mm. but uh thank you <laughs> it was awful 
Um, yeah. So I, I went into it basically, you know, with early zero stuff, not really yeah. knowing. Oh, I'm just so happy that it's back where it belongs. Yeah, no, totally. And I think that seems like from what I've read is like quite a common story. A lot of people that were published didn't really know what had been going on right up to like two months ago, didn't really know. So um, it's quite a like strange one, but but I think like the yeah early zero was so important for me. I think like um, obviously Mark Fisher's work and and just just like I think the fact of it being stuff, but then all the kind of sort of speculative realism around that time, just basically a press that would support kind of you know the high and low theory thing, like kind of like writing about high theory through pop culture was such a like exciting thing for me. It makes it so accessible. Yeah, I um. I sort of share a love for theory, but um, I think we're both fans of Derrida. Um, but Derrida kind of makes or breaks me on any given day. Like yeah. sometimes I'll pick up a Der- Derrida book thinking it's really what I need. And then I like can't read for another month. <laughs> it's <laughs> so difficult. Um, yeah. And I find repeater now, mainly repeater really sort of, can break me out of that rut with reading and be like, oh yeah, I, I do love theory. I do enjoy reading about this stuff. Um, yeah. I think it's like every time, like I think the thing I like about Derrida or like my favorite Derrida works are ones where he performs his readings. Like, isn't like he, like, like, like the best Freud text, like, okay, he's got like a theoretical game, but it's like being read through, um, whether it's Jeanne or, um, yeah, it's not just like, detached it's very like him doing close readings um stuff like that yeah i really i really enjoyed um specters of marx because it was doing that but it was also doing it with um a writer obviously marx you know i have some knowledge of like i've read a little bit not as much as i should um but uh I think it was Plato's Pharmacy I've been trying to read and um, having that sort of mode of reading performed on Egyptian mythology and hieroglyphics, like, I feel like I'm just, it's going right over my head. Yeah, no, and it, it's, because I'm obsessed with this t- this concept of the Korra that um, I think gets kind of articulated in like Plato's Timaeus, that it, I can't remember if that Derrida essay goes into it, but Derrida writes through it quite a lot. Um, so I know that over the last I don't know, seven years, I've definitely like dipped in and out of some of some of that. Um, and because I did my undergrad thesis on Tom McCarthy's novel C, and there's a lot towards the end that kind of like it's in Egypt and they're in some set in the world World War One, and Tom McCarthy is just kind of like very much wearing on his sleeve to some extent like the theoretical influences Derrida being one so I think like I was trying to write through a little bit of that kind of the higher but it becomes like kind of not well kind of problematic if you're like I don't really understand um the context of this language um but I think like in the context of that reading I was trying to talk about um kind of like networking modernity so and the idea of like originary technicity um, that I guess kind of works with Derrida's thought. There's like this guy, I don't know if you know, um, oh, what's his name? Um, he came up with this term. But anyway, he, he, 
might be Arthur Bradley, but he traces um, an origin from sort of like Heidegger to Derrida to, to Bernard Steigler um, around this idea of like technology and writing and the idea that like techni has always been part of human consciousness from the, the first person that carved something into a wall. Um, and like, I quite liked how the novel went back to like ancient history to articulate that. And I think the whole novel is about the internet, but it, it's mostly about radio. Um, so mm. that was my argument, I guess, was like how you sort of avoided like making an obsolete novel about the internet in 2010 by writing about modernist technology or something. Um, that sounds fascinating. I'm only quiet because I haven't read any any of these people except Tarita. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the only one you really need. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, I, I actually. Good, um, but... Yeah, I make a really conscious effort as well to avoid reading Heidegger. Um, yeah, for good reasons. Some unfortunately, yeah, caught me early on, and um, but I did want to ask about theory and your work in general because I think you name dropped Levinas at some point. I also wondered if foam theory is a reference to Peter. No time. Oh, um, foams like, and the trilogy. Yeah, yeah um, definitely. I think so. On the eleven last question, I suppose like I got quite interested in like face the, the ethics of faces, especially during the pandemic obviously because mm. suddenly we were all wearing masks um but then also because of zoom we were all very much face to face in this way that felt quite um strange to me because i wasn't someone who's really used video conferencing software before um and so i was thinking yeah. but then actually that that poem was written in 2019 so it wasn't actually anything to do with that i have no idea why i was writing about levinas in 2019 <laughs> that was another era um but in terms of yeah the slaughter dyke like um i quite like how he essentially articulates these huge sort of architectures um like foam sort of bubbles um forget what the third one was but it's like globes, a, is it? globes probably yeah it's no. like a spheres trilogy so that would make sense um, yeah but then um he has this idea of almost like sort of architectures where you can kind of play like kind of it's like a republic of spaces um i haven't read it closely enough which is probably a problem but um, I, uh, well, mine is worse. I I just I started reading. I think it was Foams. It was it was one of the three. I started reading it at a point where I was really stressed, and so I got like twenty pages in, and I put it down. I was like, "This is terrible," um, yeah. and I really want to go back to it because every time I read the synopsis, I think it sounds phenomenal. It sounds like this right up my alley. So. Yeah, I think there's. I'm just trying to get round to this idea of like, what does it mean to read theory as an artist? Um, sometimes because obviously like like yourself kind of raised in a literature environment where you're you're reading it in a specific kind of critical way but then sometimes I'm like what does it mean to read it as an artist where you're doing the critique through the practice um and so like how it doesn't it's like how to sort of like find ways into the text without without like losing rigor but um I think that's what I've been able to do through like more poetic practice and the, the practice based PhD to some extent. Um, there's a sort of I erotic also, theory that comes from the form of it that is sometimes neglected. Yeah, I wanted to ask when you're reading theory, if you're um, approaching it in a sort of, I'm going to read this 
theorist to learn about you know the world whatever something quite general or are you sort of going into it thinking like okay what can i gain from it in terms of my writing like so are you like are you immediately reading it through the lens of um some kind of poetics even though it's kind of like tangentially related to poetics not necessarily its primary focus or are you or are you just if i happen to come across something that's relevant to me as a poet great yeah i think probably the latter like i'm a very apophenic person and i'm someone who like definitely reads based on desire i guess or like inclination um like again like as a as a kind of like academic or someone in academic spaces like i before you know in previous years i would go to the library to look for a helene sisu text and then just get lost in an annex come out with like 12 books read them all in really idiosyncratic ways and maybe take like 25 percent of that in um but then i think like which is why i think i'm drawn to derrida because it's got that kind of um materiality to the prose it, it feels some of my favorite Derrida works are the ones that are like like um his book Glass and his book Cinders because they are kind of about these specific quite material or sensuous concepts like the, the cinder is like um kind of like a figure for what comes before the words like um this idea of like I have no French, so I'm not going to try and say the French, but like the idea of like cinders that are, there are cinders before um, anything. And this kind of ties back into his reading of like um, the Holocaust and stuff. So it does have like an interesting his- historicity. Um, but I think, yeah, I think I kind of read stuff very much based on like association, probably because I was raised in Google land. Um, so I kind of read things for like odd snippets, you know, back when, I started uni, it was like the Google book preview thing that would like save your ass every time you're writing an essay. You would just like, <laughs> hope none yeah. of my students are listening. <laughs> but you would kind of like just get whatever was in, whatever you cited was pretty much whatever was able to be previewed. And I was like, that's that's such a like interesting infrastructural politics of like whatever arbitrary- the Introductions are the best bit anyway. True, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, really validating for me though, the sort of reading on- um, reading by desire because it's something I've really tried to do a lot more of especially in the sort of I guess like latter phases not that it's ending anytime soon of the pandemic but in, in the beginning I was still kind of in this I should read x and y um, and I think also just historically in my family there has been some shaming for you know having 20 books that you you never finish that kind of thing um, but Right now, I've got about 20 books, none of which I finished, all on the go. And I'm enjoying it so much more. Mm. Um, I feel like enjoyment is just so undervalued in reading and writing poetry. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and like, like theory shouldn't just tell you about the world. It's also about, like, completely, like, changing your embodied relation to the world. Like, at least for me, I don't know. Like, when you read... um, you know, to bring up Fisher again, like when you read stuff like Ghost of My Life, it's like very much an empathic experience you have where you're like, it's it's quite hard to, I think actually um, this came on one of your previous podcasts where, where um, David Spitzer was talking about this, like it's hard to go back and listen to or and like read it because you're like, this is so like mm. emotionally overwhelming because um, you can kind of get that 
feeling of the melancholia and I think like something that you sometimes get in, in Derrida or like that kind of tinge of um this the spectral or like the tinge of um because like I, I guess it's like not really wanting to use this term like autofiction like in my PhD I'm kind of writing with an eye and with some elements of personal experience but I, it feels much more performative but it's tinged with like um yeah different sort of situated experience um and like the melancholy or the joy or the weird the distracted swerves of what it is to kind of think this stuff um seeing as we mentioned david spittle um i wondered if we could have a reading of my rodent sisters because i don't know if you know but david is a big rat person and until recently, he had a couple of pet rats, in fact. Sadly, Aww. I think they died. But, um, Do you know what they were My cat is like, oh, rats. <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> really terribly. I used to, I think, I think um, the poet Sophie Collins was telling me about how she knows someone who, like, named, like, loads. She didn't know, yeah, they used to live near someone who owned loads of rats. They were all named after, like, British chocolate varieties like twirl and like <laughs> twix and stuff. i miss british chocolate <laughs> oh, it's, it's pretty it's good Hershey's it's, here. Got, it's got worse but it's still pretty good still better than hershey's oh that's not even chocolate no <sighs> it's like chalk <laughs> yeah it's like i remember when we were teenagers there was a shop in my hometown where you could go to get imported american candy before this was like a big thing in the uk there was just a PC repair shop, but it sold probably illegally levels of like high sugar. <laughs> um, and I remember yeah. trying Hershey's the first time, being like, "Oh, because that Mad Men episode." <laughs> I mean, like, I know, that, yeah, that's a fantastic episode. <laughs> what so really get what really got me about that episode as well was they really didn't like the pitch for the advert. Well, I was like, oh, I was like sobbing like one amazing <laughs> yeah. advert. Literally, and they hated me. it. It was this too is much. Good chocolate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think there's um, probably like some cruel dramatic irony on um Yeah. The right. I'm exaggerating slightly about the shortage of British chocolate, but double deckers are mm. impossible to find. Double deckers and also Jaffa cakes. Oh no, that's that is bad. Right. <laughs> it's the politics of this stuff is I mean like the honestly like the Guardian's coverage of COP26 um a lot of it was just like reactions to iron brew <laughs> like just like world leaders trying iron brew for the first time it was like a really long article let's, about this <laughs> let's all distract ourselves from the oncoming doom yeah pictures of the politicians <laughs> drinking iron brew yeah which you know iron brew is great stuff it has its usage um <laughs> not gonna save the world though not gonna save the world though <laughs> um okay so this is my rodent sisters and another epigraph. <laughs> I swear not every poem has an epigraph in this book. Then it's okay strange... if they do. It's okay if they do. I don't know. Like it's like a, just a giant intertext. It's like very much Yeah. Rhizomes. I find them really helpful actually as ways into thinking about poetry. I um am honestly quite a dumb, slow reader of poems. I pretend otherwise because it's really hard running a poetry podcast. <laughs> Um, if you don't but but I really like when a writer just sort of signals like okay here's like a little starting point for you you can kind of run away with it 
So. Yeah, it's true. It's like, and I also think of them as like kind of portals, like they take you to other texts. And then if it's like something that um, a writer seems to have a particular obsession with like particular motif or um, reference. And then I also think like, it sort of levels like the, I guess, cause in this book there's, there's epigraphs from like, yeah, like Deleuze and Guattari, but there's also epigraphs from like Mitski. Um, it's like, this is all just the different kind of texts that went into it. Not all of it is like language. Some of it is like song or something. I mean, obviously song is language, but like not all of it is like on a page. Um, and it, I always find it quite interesting to see what happens when you put stuff like song lyrics on a page. Um, I have to say, um, there's a bookshop up the road from me who are selling a collected lyrics of Paul McCartney, which worries me slightly. <laughs> Yeah, this is definitely seeing yellow it. submarine written over and over again. Oh, <laughs> having used to be in like a school jazz band where we'd have to play um like a lot of those songs and on tr- on a trombone. Try doing school choir with those songs. Jesus. Oh. <laughs> I mean the good thing about trombone is that you essentially have like eight bars of rest for every like two bars you play. Right. So it's a lot of just like zoning out, um, which was probably quite playing good. an instrument is hard work though. You can't need the rest. Yeah. Especially a brass instrument. Gosh. (laughs) Yeah. We had a thing at my school where um, I realize I'm derailing a reading again. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, It seems appropriate. (laughs) Trombones, rats, it goes together. (laughs) Um, I fortunately missed it by a year, but my brother's year, they all had to learn an instrument. I think they had a choice of trumpet or piano, which is like the weirdest (laughs) choice to me. (laughs) It's basically like, what height are you? <laughs> Do you yeah. look like you could <laughs> reach or like how so big are your for, hands or something? For at least a year, possibly longer, um, my, bro- my brother was trying to play the trumpet and my mum was telling him to be chocolatey with the trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> one of my dreams is to play, um, like I haven't played trombone in like 10 years, but one of my dreams is to play like the Neutral Milk, Neutral Milk Hotel's um, uh, Holland 1945 because it's like the only pop song I know with like good trombone in it um, it's probably not that difficult it's probably just a lot of like uh, glissando <laughs> I was about to try and make that noise in my mouth and realize no I'm not going to <laughs> when we were when, when I was bringing up Joni Mitchell before I was having to fight the urge to sing the verse I was thinking of which would have gone horribly for everyone involved yeah, I think, like, I personally don't have a professional mic uh, on this laptop, and I just don't think my voice uh, <laughs> has justice. <laughs> I, I always remember, um, I, I always get uh, got a feeling when we did the, like, end-of-year school plays that we all sounded amazing when we were listening to it mm. in the, you know, in the hall. And then there'd be, like, this YouTube video that we'd all go back and watch, and it was hideous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I think this is true, like, there's something extremely like inherently beautiful about like voices singing together relatively together so like okay not everyone is completely in tune but like there's just something very inherently pleasing about it but then as soon as it's yeah like put through bad quality feedback loops and listened to retroactively it's just yeah kills it and like I remember doing this thing a while ago for some like ecology workshop where they made us all kind of like hum at different pitches um and it was something to do with like bees um and I was very skeptical I was like, oh. trying to summon the bees <laughs> <laughs> we were just trying to create a hive um I don't really remember like what the 
point was but and I remember being quite skeptical because I'm not very good at like these kinds of like group vocal activities um but um, it was really uh, as someone that's not good at any kind of group activity <laughs> I sympathize <laughs> yeah I'm just a lone wolf I don't know I find it I find it quite it's like organized fun is really stressful for me um yeah yeah. yeah I think as well like fun is something supposedly spontaneous so when you're and it's like a room of people often whom if it's at school you don't really like and everyone's like go have fun <laughs> <laughs> no exactly I remember yeah um it usually ends badly as well someone has to do something to like break situation <laughs> yeah okay let's have my road and sisters then I'm gonna ask you about being a lone wolf Okay. Um, then a strange imperative wells. Either stop writing or write like a rat. Deleuze and Guattari. As drunk, also mad, poor, rank, weak, etc. As a rat catch like a rat in a trap to do, also pull a rat to feel rat shit to get a rat to give a person rats to go to rat shit to have rats in one's garret to like a rat up a drain pipe, also drain rope pump like rats leaving a sinking ship not to give a rat's ass also ass rat ass rat bait rat bat rat bean rat bird rat bite rat beaver rat born rat brained rat cage rat catching rat charmer rat cheese rat clam rat colored rat deserted rat eaten rat eyed rat face rat bat rat firm rat fish rat flea rat buck rat fur rat norn rat gray rat hair rat haunt rat cord rat house Rat hunt, rat hunting, rat in a trap, also cage, corner, etc. A rat infested, rat inhabited, rat kangaroo, rat killer, rat kind, rat king, rat labor, rat land, rat leather, rat like, rat mole, rat office, rat pie, rat pill, rat pit, rat plague, rat poison, rat poor, rat rat pill, rat pit, rat plague, rat poison, rat poor, rat preserve, rat printing office, rat proof, rat risen, rat riddled, rat rule, rats, and mice, rats, us. Rat season, rat shit, rat shrewd, rat skin, rat snake, rat's nest, rat sold, rat swift, rat taker, rat terrier, rat tight, rat tooth, rat warren to smell the rats, get your rat out. <laughs> I love the last line. I also love the, um, I feel like almost every single phrase in the poem is um, the kind of negative language we have around rats and yet the overwhelming effect of the poem is positive and like the rat is something powerful and almost to be admired for fucking with so many people basically or, yeah like i think this is like the I'm rat trying... is going to bring down the system almost yeah um like there's sort of like the abjection of of the rat as like a figure um and then also kind of like I could hear something scratching there. It's, <laughs> there it's a, I'm playing the rat sound effect. For... <laughs> <laughs> um, and kind of just the idea of, I think, because like obviously last year was year of the rat, and um, I think a lot of a lot of people sort of were thinking about about rats again. And I, um, I, I remember in January talking to Alice and Romfit about this and we were going to like write a pamphlet about rats together and we had this google doc um we know nothing came of it but I think we both got some like all right poems out of it um and there's something about like the rat because the rat is like I guess there is a chapter in um, a thousand plateau about 
um like there's literally a phrase that's like rats are rhizomes and it's like how rats kind of operate is in that kind of like weird like overlapping collective like this idea of a rat king the entanglement of um one of the initial cover ideas I discussed with Douglas was to do was to draw like a rat king of some kind like have this kind of like spiral of like rat tails and like different rats coming out um which you know um it's pretty cool but um and then the weird like semantic saturation of rats like it kind of enacts some, something of that like motion um when you read it it like like you're literally writing like a rat somehow I feel like my tongue is like running away from me I don't really know what I'm doing um like I definitely repeated a line for example by mistake but yeah I'm sorry I made you read the tongue twister after no, an hour no. of talking <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of like I guess I'm quite interested in yeah like giving away the poem to the animal or something like there is like like how to write like a rat like in an app like obviously not in a way of like what would a rat think about this but to really sort of learn from rats um and especially i mean obviously like having just lived through the plague times and still living through rats are kind of like a figure for that to some extent um kind of reminds me of how donna haraway talks about um pigeons and kleptoparasites mm. in is it staying in the, the trouble scene book oh, yeah staying yeah. the trouble yeah. For some reason, I, I mean, I know the phrase staying with the trouble. For some reason, I always forget that's actually the title as well. Um, yeah, no, I think it's like because there's so many tropes in that book, like the Couture scene is, or something like I, yeah, I only, because I do this work in like an art collective and we did like some reading groups back in 2018 and we, it was like that book and um, Anna Sings Mushroom at the End of the World just like kind of got, to know it way too closely <laughs> um in that way when you're preparing for a reading group you're just like uh any possible angle you need to have um no you actually need any you just like improvise it's fine but yeah it's a pretty cool book so seeing seeing as we're coming up to an hour i feel like i should let you go um i was just gonna end by asking what's coming next mm. um whether it's what you're doing, what you're working on, what Spanzine is working on. Yeah, um, so I am finishing the thesis. It's nearly there. So that, that'll be done um, early next year. Um, and then I'm kind of working on turning some of my journals in the past couple of years into some kind of manuscript. Um, and doing um with with a and e collective which is the art and ecology collective and we, we're um kind of working towards we've just done this kind of project for cop that was around low carbon pleasures um it was like a podcast series so we're finalizing that um but then in the future we kind of want to apply for funding um and do some bigger projects um i also want to like do some i just want to do a residency i'm really desperate to work on something specific after very chaotic right like three years like I really did do a lot of different things during my PhD which is great. Would a residency give you a, a different place to go to as well? Yeah yeah I think like that would be especially the idea would be to maybe like collaborate so um there's this sculpture Jacko Flynn sculptor sculpture <laughs> sculptor Jacko Flynn who I worked with um on a recent exhibition and um we have quite a good like collaborative rhythm um and we were maybe going to apply together. And I think like having that kind of accountability of a collaborator kind of, you just, it would be really cool to work on something again um, and like sort of skill swap. Like I would quite like to 
do more visual um, and tactile things and maybe he'd like to do more poetry um so that's an idea and then with spam we are launching our season five pamphlets um on the 25th so that's really soon um and then we've got like seven other things to release in the next like six months so work cut out there um yeah (laughs) the spam machine continues yeah uh, well, I love spam and I love your work. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Andrew.